Hi, everybody. This is John Donvan. Welcome to Intelligence Squared and to a debate about a law, or actually a series of laws, one in every state. They are relatively new. They went into effect with huge public support. They are the laws that require sex offenders to register on a list that is available to the public. The first such law went into effect about 30 years ago in Washington state. And today there are some 800,000 people in the U.S. whose names appear across 50 state registries and a federal version. The primary purpose of these laws is the idea that people should know if a sex offender lives near them or works by them, where having that information would help keep the rest of us safer. Part of the thinking also is that being on the list would discourage recidivism. And that's a term that simply refers to someone who has been convicted of a crime offending again. Safety and justice, those are the assumptions. This debate is about whether those assumptions have proven valid now that we have had three decades to see their impact and whether the price paid for being on a registry is justified practically and also morally. The question we're asking, do sex offender registries do more harm than good? Let's get to it. So let's meet our guests now. And again, the question is, does the sex offender registry do more harm than good? We will have one debater answering yes to that question and the other answering no. Our yes is from Emily Horowitz. Emily is a sociologist who researches sex offense law and policy. She is the author of Protecting Our Kids, question mark, how sex offender laws are failing us. And also from Rage to Reason, why we need sex crime laws based on facts, not fear. Emily Horowitz, thanks so much for joining us at Intelligence Squared. Thank you so much for taking on this challenging topic. It is a challenging topic indeed, and we have somebody coming from the other side to take on the challenge as well. Arguing no will be Carrie Fetterman. Carrie is an associate professor at Montclair State University who focuses on law and jurisprudence and free speech and democratic theory and prisons and prisoners' rights. He is the author of Democracy and Deliberation, The Law and Politics of Sex Offender Legislation. Carrie Fetterman, thanks so much also for joining us at Intelligence Squared. Great to be with you, John. So let's get started by going into our first round, which will be each of you in turn making the case, taking a few minutes to tell us why you're a yes or a no. Emily Horowitz, you are the yes. Again, the question is, the sex offender registry does more harm than good. You're up first. Why are you a yes to that? Thank you. So almost everyone will disagree with my argument opposing endless punishment and abuse towards those convicted of sex offenses. But I argue that the experience of being branded a quote-unquote sex offender is wrong, ineffective, counterproductive, and destructive. Even those who advocate for those with justice involvement avoid critiquing registries like religious and spiritual leaders and organizations, criminal justice reformers, and advocates for social justice who on principle support and forgive those who have made terrible mistakes. My position is so marginal because we wrongly view those on registries with unique revulsion and in need of special and excessive punishment due to the false but pervasive belief that all those convicted of sex offenses are simil similarly predacious, uncontrollable, and unable ever to stop offending, and thus punished and permanently surveyed because unlike all other humans, they are uniquely impervious to change. Most are surprised to hear that those convicted of sex offenses are not a distinct breed of person unresponsive to punishment and treatment, or that subjecting them to lifelong banishment and humiliation is counterproductive and vengeful. Sexual harm is profound, but there's no evidence that excessive draconian punishment resolves the pain and trauma of those hurt any more than ordinary criminal legal sanctions or other forms of accountability. 
The fact is that those on registries, despite widespread belief, don't have high rates of sexual reoffense, which we call recidivism. And like everyone else with past convictions, reoffense rates decline over time. Low recidivism rates are not caused by registries or a result of registries. There's been a steady and significant decline in child sexual abuse since before the time registries were implemented and before federal registry laws. Scholars find that decline is largely due to social and economic factors, not the registry. Um, and simply put, those with sex offense convictions have lower reoffense rates than those having committed almost any other offense. To be clear, the data on low sex offense recidivism isn't based on select or cherry-picked studies or data, but is virtually, as one scholar noted, the consensus of an entire field. Um, one reason for widespread support for these banishment schemes is the pervasive belief that sexual harm crosses a line held to be of a nature and magnitude unlike virtually any other injury, including murder and physical assault or abuse, and an experience from which one can never recover, and that all sexual harm is equally traumatic. To be clear, I don't have a soft spot for those convicted of sex offenses, I don't minimize the trauma of sexual harm or question the extent of sexual violence, but we need reasonable, just evidence-based policies while de-escalating panic-driven attitudes that result in the needless and brutal exile of an entire class of people that affects even their closest relatives and friends. To be clear, and on this final note, sex offenses are caused and characterized by the same factors as all other crimes. Those convicted are almost always dealing with such things as untreated mental illness, substance use and abuse, brain injuries, untreated trauma, abuse or neglect, or PTSD resulting from military service or other painful past experiences. Like most transgressions, committing a sex offense is rarely a premeditated and carefully executed decision where one weighs risks and consequences, but crimes of impulse and opportunity. Most incidents occur during times of extreme personal stress when one is avoiding the pain of addressing longstanding personal, psychological, and emotional issues. Registries are a failure. Accountability, treatment, and reentry opportunities are effective ways to limit reoffense. Thank you very much, Emily Horowitz. And that brings you onto the stage, Carrie Fetterman. You are answering no to the question, do sex offender registries do more harm than good? You are a no because, please tell us. Sure. Uh, so to the question, uh, does the registry do more harm than good? Uh, I answer uh, good. Um, this does not mean that I, uh, uh, there aren't some things about the registry that I, I find uh, difficult uh, to accept. Uh, but my positive argument is that the registry and sex offender laws themselves in general are products of an enormous amount of deliberation between parents, citizens, and legislators. They are not products, for example, of referenda, which tend to oppress so-called outgroups uh, because they lack deliberative principles. Uh, sex offender laws are the products of an intense negotiation between parents of raped, abducted, and uh, murdered children and state legislators. These laws began in Washington state as a response to the rape and murder of a number of children by Earl Schreiner, uh, a man uh, who had a 24-year uh, history of rape and murder of children, as well as of Diane Balasiotis, uh, who was raped and murdered by a sex offender. These laws then, from Washington state, moved east to New Jersey, where Megan Kanka, a seven-year-old child, was raped, abducted, and murdered uh, uh, from somebody who lived on her own block. Um, uh, 
when then New Jersey started a, a, a sex offender law. At that point, the movement went to the Middle West, uh, where in Kansas they picked up these laws, as well as throughout the rest of the country. At that point, it goes back east to Washington, D.C., where both houses of Congress passed the law, the Adam Walsh Act or the SORNA Act, um, that uh, requires uh, notification and registration laws. These laws are enormously democratic, and they are the enormous product of deliberation rather than what Emily would later call statistical anomalies, which she refers to uh, in her book, um, uh, Megan Kanka, for example. Um, and they are not products of what Emily likes to call moral panic. Uh, and we should discuss that, uh, John, at one point. Instead, what I see when I look at sex offender laws, I see parents, victims, and legislators deliber deliberating honestly about public safety and what democracy actually means. Thank you very much, Carrie Fetterman. We're going we're gonna to get into the, the points of difference that you've both laid out there. But before we do, I, I'm just, I just want to take a moment, since this is a topic that does not tend to be a mainstream conversation. And Emily, in particular, you've already pointed out that, um, that you, you feel you're taking a, a position that is represented by, uh, that you refer to as marginal, in that it's highly unpopular that by arguing in any way against sex offender registry laws that you are, um, so in some ways, touching a third rail. It's a taboo. I'm just curious, want to ask each of this, this question, how you got into this topic as a field of study. Emily, why don't you go first? I started studying sex offense law when I was teaching criminal justice, and I met somebody who'd been convicted of a sex offense. And I was really surprised because this person had been convicted of a sex offense. They'd spent 13 years in prison, and they were trapped under the pressure of the unending consequences. While in prison, this person, he'd spent 13 years in prison. While in prison, he'd become very religious. Uh, after he got out, he wasn't able to go to church because his church banned people on registries. He wasn't able to find work. Every job he applied for would not hire people on registries. He couldn't uh, participate in athletic activities or recreational activities. Um, he was kicked out of multiple apartment buildings, and he really couldn't survive. And it seemed totally counterintuitive. All the research on recidivism shows the best way to help people not offend again is to support them and give them opportunities. And the registry okay. shames and doesn't allow people to do this. All right. So you saw a need for you saw a need for research on this topic is basically your answer to the question. And what about you, Carrie? How did you get into this as a as a topic to write about? Right. Well, I also saw a need. Um, let me try to correct something that Emily said, though. Emily said that she's part of a marginalized group of people. In fact, Emily's position is the orthodox position. Uh, I've read hundreds of, of peer-reviewed articles on sex offenders, and not one of them supports my position. Not one of them actually can uh, uh, make an argument in defense of sex offender laws. You have to really go through the weeds to find, and honestly, uh, top of my head, three articles is what I can think of at the top of my head that remotely uh, uh, agrees with my position on the subject. So uh, that's how I came to the subject, because I, I, I'm not a sex offender researcher. I'm a constitutional law uh, expert. Um, but looking at things like Hearing about sex offender laws and residency restrictions, I you know poke around and look at this interesting constitutional question of democracy and citizen engagement and that kind of thing. And the more I read, the more I was astonished at at, at how critical this literature actually is. So thank you for that. Interesting. Both of you feel that you're arguing from a minority position on this. Um, so I'll just note that. But I want to ask you each to tell me what you feel the purpose, the intended purpose of the sex offender registration laws in all 50 states are from the point of view of those who have supported them. Emily, why do you think 
you, I'd like you to go first again on this. Why do you think these laws were passed? With what purpose do you feel these laws were passed? What were its proponents hoping to achieve? Well, even uh, Jacob Wetterling's mother, who was responsible for the first federal registry law, her son was abducted and murdered. And she advocated for federal registry laws because she thought it must be somebody who has a prior sex offense. Wouldn't it be great if the police had a list of everybody who had a prior sex offense and then we could find the person immediately? She's now retracted her position and said these laws do way more harm than good and this was not. But what social good do you think that these laws were meant to achieve? So I think when you hear about an abducted child, and they are statistical anomalies, almost no children are abducted and murdered by strangers on registries. Um, It almost never happens, thank goodness, but it captures our imagination and is so horrifying. It's the most horrifying thing we can imagine. We want to do something. So we think these laws will help us. If we know everybody in our neighborhood who's had a prior sex offense, our children will be safe. But unfortunately, over 93% of sexual uh, offenses involve people we know, and they're not on registries. More from Intelligence Squared U.S. when we return. Welcome back to Intelligence Squared U.S. Let's get back to our debate. So your answer is that those who had passed them wanted to make, make, make the world safer for people out there. Carrie, what's your understanding of the purpose of these laws by those who passed them? Yeah, well, uh, I mean, public safety. This is uh, um, Emily likes to link the registry with sex offenders. I like to look at the first phase, which is that children were being abducted in Washington State. There's plenty of evidence of this. Um, uh, Earl Schreiner was a miserable person uh, who uh, had a rape spree for over 24 years. Uh, children were dying. Um, and then uh, this Diane Balasiotis, who was a, a teenager, her, she was uh, raped and abducted and killed. Um, her mother, who was a completely uh, uh, unpolitical person, so Emily will bring up uh, Wetterling's mother who changed her mind, but Adam Walsh's father didn't change his mind, and the Kanka's parents didn't change their mind, and Balasiotis didn't change her mind. There are hundreds of parents whose children have been abducted and killed, who uh, who got involved politically, which I found as a scholar of democracy, I found that to be the grassroots, this is the common sense view, that people were being abducted and killed, and that there ought to be a stop to this. So I was really quite taken by these narratives of of, of civic engagement by parents. These are very powerful stories. Okay, so what you've both said, and I, I think it's somewhat obvious, is these laws were passed with the notion that they would make the general public safer. And I want to look at that uh, contention. I know, Emily, that you are also focused on the impact of the those who are convicted. And I want to get to that. But first, I want to talk about, does it make the world safer for people to have these laws? And you've alluded a little bit to this, Emily. I think you're saying, no, it doesn't. So what is your argument that they don't actually produce the outcome that the, the, those who supported the laws intended. It's the consensus of the entire field. And recidivism declines over time. So that's the first thing. And then in addition, it's really important to know most people that are on the registry um, are there. It's a, their first offense. They have no prior convictions. And the victim is someone known to them. Almost all sexual abuse, like all crimes, involve people you know. So the registry was designed with good intentions by parents thinking this will protect our children from strangers. But it doesn't do that. There's no evidence it does that. Um People like Larry Nasser, who have multiple victims spanning decades, Larry Nasser never had a prior conviction until he was prosecuted. They'll be in prison forever. 
Um, they also, they're very expensive and they take away from punishing and preventing new sex offenses. There's been revelations in recent years about gluts of sexual assault kits that are not tested in police stations, yet enormous resources are put into this registry, which is not doing anything. In order to prevent sexual abuse, which we've done a good job with decreasing the rates of sexual abuse since the early 90s, was a result of social changes, less tolerance for abuse, awareness, and economic factors, just like with all other sorts of crime. I'm not against punishment. People who commit sexual crimes should be punished and held accountable, but not for the rest of their lives, not publicly, not once they serve their time. So Emily's making the case, um, you know, very emphatically that the registry was designed to make the world safer, but it's not actually doing that. It's, it's particularly designed to decrease that threat from strangers by telling us who those people are. And Emily's making the case that most of the most of the assaults do not involve strangers, and that most of the people who are on the registry are first-time offenders. So, you know, they weren't caught before that. So I'd like you to take on the gist of her argument that the registry doesn't actually function the way it was supposed to. Well, um, I don't doubt that the registry has some problems, um, but uh, I view the registry as a tool of deterrence and um, deterrence theory is not overly concerned about raw numbers. You know, in other words, if it's deter, I mean, I mean, Emily's argument in some sense, I mean, she makes a claim that uh, uh, sex offending declines with age. Every crime, uh, every crime, literally every crime declines with age. So, so what's the point about such an argument? Uh, well, I, I, yeah. I mean, I'm just saying this as a lay person, but the point would be that why should somebody stay on the sex registry through their 60s and 70s and 80s? Well, if- be, right, because precisely because uh, for one thing, people do need to know that there are sex offenders in their neighborhood. Um, I have documented- Well, that's, be- that's begging the question, I think. I Is it not? Yeah, no, not to me, because I, I have documented stories in my book where a 70-year-old guy uh, raped a, a, an underage girl. Um, he was on the registry, actually. So, Emily, to respond? Yeah. I mean, I think lifetime consequences and excessive long sentences for many uh, offenses- are ineffective and wasteful. You see our prisons filled with people in hospice. And for people on the registry, well, it is the point. Why, If people age out of crime, why do we have lifetime registries? Why are they there? They have to keep registering. There's a huge problem with nursing homes. People on registries can't get accepted into nursing homes. Emily keeps saying about recidivism rates as if they are uncontroversial, and they're completely controversial. Emily herself has recidivism rates in her book at 70% in some instances. So, um, they bounce around. They bounce around from one to five years. They bounce around from male to female. They bounce around from from uh, different uh, groups. Um, there are all sorts of reasons. Uh, untreated uh, sex offenders, as the Department of Justice mentions, comes could be uh, recidivism rates could reach something like eighty percent in some cases. Well, Stand the back, registry actually. doesn't decrease recidivism, and there's millions of people on registry. It's not supposed kids to. And mothers and spouses. That's why most anti-registry activists, in fact, the leaders of most of the major organizations are mothers and spouses of people on registries. Nobody's saying that anybody is expendable, but these registries are not helping anyone. I would just say that recidivism numbers are sufficiently low. The most recent analyses show the whole field finds them low and they decrease over time, that it makes little public safety sense to focus all of our efforts and resources on what is a relatively small population. Um, And this is true even if we forget the fact that registration, notification, and restrictions uh, are effective at reducing recidivism, whether it's low or high. Um, And there's 
other evidence that these laws may actually increase recidivism by creating what we know are well-validated recidivism risk factors. If we make people desperate, if we humiliate people, if we deny people dignity, that is not a way to help them re-enter society. I've spent the last couple of years interviewing people on registries for my forthcoming book, and the devastation is horrific. Most people on the registry deserve a second chance and want a second chance. They have been punished enough. They've been held accountable. They've been held accountable to a point where they can barely eat or live. It's just a matter of how we care about human beings. If some people are disposable, if we want to create monsters, it's not a good thing. It hurts all of us. Carrie, I wanted to ask you about what assumptions are made about sex offenders as opposed to other criminals that they require sort of lifetime monitoring. You know, people are people do commit murder, do serve their time and do get out of jail, but they don't have to sign up for a murder registry. Something something else is going on with the assumptions about sex offenders. I wanted to ask you what that is. You know what it is? It's uh nobody likes to see uh, a 13-year-old girl get raped by a 35-year-old man. Um and I think that society has a right to say that some things uh, are just beyond the pale. Um, it's these kinds of stories, you know, so Diane Balasiotis, she was, I don't know, a teenager or something like that, but, uh, Earl Schreiner's victims are seven, eight, nine years old. Megan Kank is seven years old. Wetterling was 11 or so. Jessica from Jessica's Law was nine. Rice was also a child. Um, these kinds of things grate against uh, a, a, a democratic people who don't want to tolerate this kind of behavior in their neighborhoods and communities. Um, that's what they are. So it's not about the nature of the person. It's about the nature of the crime you're saying. Of course it's not about the nature of the person. Yeah. It's the crime itself. Are you, are you suggesting that the lifetime presence on the sex offense registry is part of punishment or is, is that the main goal or is the main goal the safety point that we talked about at the beginning? Well, all right. So, so technically speaking, the the registry is a civil uh, remedy. It's not. It's not punitive. I, Emily's going to say it's punishment. It's not punishment. Um, so, any effects of this civil regulation are purely civil. They have no no relationship to the Eighth Amendment at all. Actually, um, so these are civil regulations. They're they're not punitive, but they are deterrents. Uh, you can have a civil regulation that deters. Like, uh, but, but you just made the case that that what justifies it is the outrage of society, as opposed right. to a deterrence fact that we don't want it to happen again is one thing. But you, no, no, it's you, both. Yeah, I'm sorry, it's both. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, no, it's an outrage that obviously you don't want your you don't want a second Megan Kanka to 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 disappear in your neighborhood. Emily, can you give us a? Um, this was covered a little bit in the beginning, but go back to the beginning of these laws that that Carrie laid out. What was going on? in terms of the culture and a sort of an increasing awareness of the prevalence of sex crimes, period, uh, something that 50, 60 years ago were routinely overlooked and not prosecuted by police, not reported, much less reported even so than today. And bring us up to date on where we are now in terms of states that have laws, how many people are uh, on registries, et cetera. Okay, so the most recent data that um, is out there shows almost a million people are on registries. Everybody who's on the registry, their address is on the internet, and so their families, children, parents are also exposed to this. Some registries also include your work address. In some states, they put your shoe size and your photograph. Um, And some places, all your neighbors are notified when you move in um, or on a regular basis that somebody who has a prior sex offense lives near them. 
And what sort of offense qualifies to get to have the requirement to have to register on the registry? What what is the range of offenses? Obviously, rape we've talked about a significant amount. Are there others? And how much of what proportion of it, by the way, includes rapists? You can get on the registry for a wide range of sexual offenses, statutory crimes, Romeo and Juliet offenses. Um, can you can you use that's a term of art? What is a Romeo and Juliet offense? Like uh, like a twenty year old and a sixteen year old. Anybody who's under the age of consent. What if both individuals are under the age of consent? Can that get them on the register? Yeah, actually, there's people who are on the registry who are children themselves. Um, About a a large percentage of sexual offenses involving children are committed by other children themselves. Um, And in some states, children can be on the registry. In other states, uh, once you become an adult, you're on the registry, so you can be on the registry for a crime you committed as a child. Um, People under 30 are overrepresented on registries. So you can get on the registry for a wide range of crimes, uh, sting operations, talking to an FBI officer, um, posing as a minor, um, non-contact offenses, looking at pictures. Um, So you can be on there. But most people who are on there, um, and as I mentioned, also you can be on there if you have an adult victim, uh, the vast majority are people who didn't have a prior sexual offense and uh, first-time offenders who... um, know their victim. The victim is known to them. So is there a sense of what proportion of people on the registry were people who kind of planned and stalked and calculated and contemplated before acting? And I'm asking that because that that, that would be, to me, where deterrence would apply. These would be people who would be told, you know, who, who would get the message that their lives could be ruined not only by prison time, but by the lifetime presence on the registry. Yeah, I mean, I haven't interviewed or met many people who it was like extremely well thought out. Most people um, that I've talked to in almost two decades of studying this and and learning about motives um, are at low points in their lives. I recently did a study on veterans who uh, are disproportionately represented on registries. They come back and they're challenged people using substances. Um, But I'm not justifying these offenses. For whatever reason people commit these, um, the point is, is that they should be held accountable. They should be punished. I'm only talking about the punishment in addition to prison and parole, which in the United States is extremely harsh. And also, if you reoffend without a registry, uh, sexually reoffend or reoffend most crimes, you will get the book thrown at you. You will get a really long sentence. It's not the registry that gives you long sentences. Although many people go back to prison for failure to register, they don't update their driver's license or they don't update their email address. And that in itself can sometimes be a new felony. So the burden is horrific. It's extremely costly as well for police and the people on them to deal with this huge bureaucracy. Carrie? Are you you in favor of three strikes laws for sex offenders? Um, I haven't thought about it. Uh, are you in favor of three strikes laws in general? No, I'm not in favor no, of three strikes. No, so you're not in favor of, of, of right. So, so it, it bothers you that a state would take a, a deterrent policy against a criminal who does things once, twice, three times. No, I mean, if there was evidence that three strikes laws radically decrease crime rates, I would explore them. But I'm not, I'm not. Not all laws are about efficiency. I don't understand your argument here. Not all laws are about simply efficiency. This is not a democratic process. I mean, it's, it's a democratic process. So it, it, we're not governed by social scientists. We're governed by people who want to make sure that sex offenders don't rape their children. But these laws don't do that. 
These laws don't prevent new sexual offenses. 95% of new sexual offenses are committed by people not on registries. And, they're, and, and the fact that there's a registry clearly isn't deterring them. First of all, why don't you mention that sex offenders are grossly underreported? Um, and so any recidivism uh, uh, fact that you have about sex offenders uh, is not accurate, actually. And uh, before, when you said, uh, I, I mean, there are 140,000 rapes in the United States. Um, we have laws against rape, and yet, uh, and we know for a fact that 140,000 rapes is completely underreported. Carrie, you made a strong statement when you said that any fact that uh, Emily has is not accurate. Did I say that? Accurate? No, not, no, I don't think I said every, every fact or any fact that she said is not accurate. Um, no, I, I don't remember. I don't think I said that. Uh, I mean, you can roll the tape, but I don't, I don't remember saying that it was inaccurate. I, I know that she, I mean, she's not uh, being forthright about uh, sex offenders. I mean, again, the, the but numbers. Now, wait, 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 wait. Now, now, now you're, now you're accusing her of not being, not being honest, I think. No, I didn't say honest. She's not being forthright. I mean, she's not telling us the whole truth about what sex offenders All right. do. That's Emily, are you hiding something? Are you keeping something yeah. back no, 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 from no. your but argument? She, but, but did she say once that, that these law that, that sex offender uh, uh, reporting is, is terribly underreported? Okay. Well, so I'll address that. Thanks for bringing that up, Carrie. Yeah, that's okay. a really important issue. Um, many people say the recidivism rate data that shows recidivism low is unreliable because of sex crime underreporting, right? But first of all, all crimes are underreported, including most violent and property crime. Um, so we know that when you look at self-report surveys, there's a lot more sexual crime than in the official data. Right. And it's clear that those convicted of sexual offenses represent a minuscule percentage of perpetrators, which is also why I argue, why spend all of our time focusing on this? Let's test sexual assault kits that are like sitting in police stations, totally ignored. Let's not have underfunded police departments spend all day registering homeless registrants once a week. Um, but the problem of underreporting, and I'm uh, kind of quoting Ira Elman here, a wonderful law professor, um, is that uh, it's misinterpreted and weaponized. Um, so one, people will say, well, people who are on these registries are likely to have committed way more crimes, right? So once they're caught, they've done way more things in the past, right? Which obviously DUI, all sorts of crimes, people get away with a lot before they're caught, right? But second and far more importantly, the under-reporting issue is used to challenge the low rates of sex offense recidivism. And this is based on the idea that if the incidence of sex offenses are underreported, so must the frequency of crimes committed by those with prior sex offense um, convictions. And this is the main point. But there's many reasons why sex crime recidivism rate data is actually very, very good. Um, and I'll just tell you a couple of reasons for that. First of all, victims are far more likely to report sexual offenses that are committed by somebody who's on a registry. If you're a victim of sex offense and the person's on a registry, you know you will be believed it will be taken care of immediately. Police are more likely to identify and thus arrest perpetrators with prior sexual offenses. Police are more likely to follow up on reports by victims who identify the perpetrator as someone with a prior. And prosecutors are more likely to file and win convictions when the alleged perpetrator has a prior sexual offense conviction. So the recidivism rates for those with prior sex offen uh, offense convictions, according to Elman, um, is that they might even be lower than the research shows. So I think underreporting is a problem in all of the entire criminal legal field. What what might it say, and I'm being very, very crude with the statistical thrust here, but what might it say that, as you said, that the, the number of sex offenses has been decreasing pretty much since these registries went into effect? Does that tell us any 
thing about the impact of these registries. That's a really important point because I very I'm concerned that we're going to have registries for 20 more years and the recidivism rate will be low and they'll say, oh well, it's because of the registry. But if you look at data from before the implementation of registries, uh, it, sexual abuse started to decrease very profoundly and rate uh, once the awareness by the feminist movement and other victims' rights advocates identified this as a social problem that we take seriously. Prior to the 80s, the rates, it was very difficult to prosecute somebody for any form of sexual abuse against a child or an adult woman. I'm John Donvan. This is Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll hear more from our debaters right after this. Welcome back to Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. Let's get back to our debate. I want to move the conversation, Emily, in a moment to your opening argument about the impact on the accused, the the convicted, which was the thrust of your opening argument, and we haven't really explored it yet. But I first want to take a question to Carrie about your opening statement, and I think throughout the thread of your argument is that I, I think I hear you saying, you did say at the beginning, that these laws are the result of a very, very detailed and deep deliberative process that involves legislators, families, victims, police... Um, that it's not just willy-nilly. And that, secondly, these are motivated by disgust and horror at the nature of the crimes and the long-lasting impact of the nature of the crimes. And I I just want to ask you, because sometimes these laws are dismissed as society just having an impulse for vengeance. Is vengeance okay? Is that an okay motivation um, to, to be to be written into the law? It doesn't have to be written into the law, but vengeance is going to come probably one way or another, and it's best if it's written into the law rather than letting uh, mobs uh, do the vengeance. So laws can accommodate these kinds of uh, emotions by by being hard and lengthy and deterrence-based if they have to be. Um, sure, I have no problem with that. I mean, it, it's certainly it's in accordance with the general principles of, of deterrence. I don't think that they're vengeful. I think that there is a script that Emily's position, I'm not speaking singly out Emily here, that Emily's position, which I call the orthodox position, uh, understands that these laws are particularly vengeful, but I don't see them that way. I don't think that uh, anybody who rapes a child and is going to serve a lifetime in prison or a lifetime on the registry and not be in prison uh, is, uh, is being harmed in any way. Society has a right to defend itself. It's a very basic argument in some sense. Emily, I want to take now to your opening statement, which dwelt very much on the impact on the right of the rights of the individuals who have served their time are released, but not sort of not really released in a certain very important way. And just a little bit more texture about that, the, the predicament of those individuals than you've had the chance to talk about so far. Yeah, I mean, people that live under these laws um, they're endlessly punished. They're permanently stigmatized. Um, and it's kind of interesting because denying that those who've been punished the opportunity to repent and reenter society, it just creates new harm. And it also undermines all philosophical, religious, spiritual, and ethical principles about forgiveness and redemption. But when it comes to people convicted of sex offenses, we, we just abandon the grace and understanding we may readily offer to others. So can you give a, dep- a depiction of, of how, how being on the re- registry continues to be experienced by the individual who's on the registry as a punitive experience? Yeah, so many of the people I interviewed said, the longer I'm offense-free, the longer since I 
got off of parole and I've done everything right, I've had a job, the punishments grow and grow because they never roll back the laws. So they add additional laws all the time, right? So if you're on the registry and you haven't offended in 20 or 30 years, you still have to register quarterly or yearly. So what happens to you in your life when you're on the registry? So, for example, one person I spoke to couldn't go to his father's funeral because it was at a church where they said nobody on the registry could go. Um, One father had a special needs child and his wife worked to support the family. He couldn't work because he's on the registry and he couldn't uh, pick up his special needs child at school or attend events at the school uh, while his wife was working. Okay, so that's because they're, they're not allowed to go near schools if they're on the registry. And you mentioned um, employment. What is the impact on employment for somebody who's on the registry? What kinds of jobs are they able to get? And what happens if they get a job and they don't report that they're on the registry and no background check is done? What happens in, routinely when, it, when the employers find out? Are they understanding or do they tend to say you're out the door? No. It, it, well, most, um, even employers that like sort of get grants and brag about how they hire people with criminal histories usually always exclude people with sex offenses. One of the things that happens is if even employers, if an, empl- an employer, some employers ban the box, which means they don't do a criminal history check. And in some states after seven years, it's automatically erased from your criminal history in any case. But the registry is public. So the other employees and the employers, everybody will know at some point that somebody's on the registry. So employers have to be willing to take a risk that uh, they're okay with the public and the other employees knowing somebody's on the registry. And it's it's a scarlet letter. It's a brand. Even if employers will tell people, look, I understand what happened. You were young. You've been great for years. You're married with kids. I can't take the risk of having this situation, having somebody on the registry employed here. So many of the people I interviewed um, struggle with employment. Um, One guy who had a college degree told me he was crying in a jack-in-the-box parking lot last week because he'd applied for 30 jobs at fast food places that he couldn't get. Sometimes, you know, obviously people have friends and and they can sometimes find work, but it's often very unstable. So many people I interviewed said to me like, okay, I have a job and things are good now, but I know things can turn on a dime. And how, how justified is the fear of having a coworker who's on the registry? Very few sexual offenses take place in the workplace. One guy I interviewed managed cell phone stores and he was very successful about it. And he said in recent years, it's gotten harder. He said 10 or 15 years ago, they knew he was on the registry and there was actually less venom. Now it's been, he's been 20 years offense free and it's getting harder and harder. And now they won't take a chance at having him manage a store. Okay. I want to come back to Carrie in just a moment because Carrie made kind of a a powerful Enforceful philosophical argument that society made these choices by and large, wrote these laws for reasons that have to do with wanting to deterrence, safety, and maybe vengeance. Um, but Emily, you also alluded to a philosophical point of view when you talked about religious values, redemption, forgiveness, and grace. Can you go on a little bit more about that? And then I want to have Carrie respond to that. Yeah, I mean, I think this is really about human dignity. The term sex offender is so visceral and harmful that if you put people on a list and you say sex offender, it's not surprising they're subject to vigilantes, mocking, whore, they're 
you know, thrown out of their neighborhoods, thrown out of their homes, um, and they live in a lot of fear. There's many examples of vigilantes. People on registries are constantly subjects to scams because people go on the list and they call them and demand money and things like that. Um, it's an extremely vulnerable, horrific position to be in. And as I said, your kids um, are aware, your parents, your spouses. It's not just the individual. It's the home. Everybody in your home is subject to this. And if we believe that people deserve second chances, we've escalated sexual harm to this place where you don't know if somebody killed somebody. And, and societally, we've kind of lost our minds about this. We're like, well, we don't care if they murdered eight people. We just want to know if they touched a child. And Punishment and accountability is effective for all offenses, sexual and otherwise. There's no evidence that somebody who sexually offends is that much of a different breed of human than any of the rest of us. They're just like us. It's a widespread prob problem. It happens in every culture. It happens throughout time. How we deal with it reflects who we are as humans. And I, I, I mean, I, I, of course, Violent crimes of all sorts are terrible, but this is not the answer. And again, maybe I'd feel totally differently if the recidivism rate was was extremely high, but it's not. So this is not an effective way to help people. It's just a way to destroy lives and throw people away and say, well, they're so much worse than us. We're so much better than them. They're done. They did something so inexcusable. I don't care. We're going to humiliate and banish them forever. Is is that how you see it, Carrie, is, and justified? No. <laughs> um, you know, Emily likes these statistical anomalies, but the Kansas uh, uh, sex offender law was based uh, absolutely on one particular offense, which is that a man and a woman worked together. His name was Donald Gideon. He was on supervised release for a rape conviction. He sexually assaulted and murdered Stephanie Schmidt. Uh, Gideon and Schmidt worked together, though Gideon's employer didn't know about it. Following Schmidt's death, her parents formed a task force, and they started a law in Kansas to pass a law for um, a notification and registry. But when you say um, it was based on one offense, yeah. that's well, not so only one offense, but certainly this one offense mobilized motivated. The okay, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Right, okay, right, right. but I want to I want to um, ask you to come back to Emily's Emily's the point that was Emily was making that there is such a thing as redemption and forgiveness and giving people a second chance, and that mm -hmm. the registry. Okay itself yeah. makes that second chance exceedingly difficult for the people sure. who are on it. And I right. want to know, do you have, do you, do you have sympathy or empathy for people in that position? Do you, do you think first, first of all, do you think that it's an accurate portrayal of the predicament of people who are on no. the registry? Right. So you think I mean, they do have a second chance out I, there? I, I'm an empathetic person. And so I, I, I would agree with Emily that one should have empathy. Is there a second chance? Sure. That's the whole purpose of post-conviction civil commitment. It's therapeutic. It's not punitive. So I'm in favor of post-conviction civil you, commitment. Let's, law. let's yeah. define that term for oh, folks sure. who don't know what you're referring to. Sure, sure, sure. So post-conviction civil commitment laws are after a, uh, a sex offender commits his crimes and then serves his time in prison. Um, <clears throat> about a year uh, before he's about to be released, um, the attorney general of the state can file uh, for a post-conviction civil commitment of this person, which is purely uh, civil reg and civil and regulatory. It's not punitive. Uh, this person will be uh, brought before a medical board and, and psyche valves will be given. And uh, if there's a judgment for a, uh, a civil commitment of this person that he remains dangerous to others uh, in the community, he will be committed. It's not a lifetime commitment. It's on a yearly basis. There's due process all the way up and down. Um, 
And uh, uh, that's one way to deal with uh, a problem like this, sure. So, so I do believe that. I mean, that, that there's there's therapy available, and it and it can work, sure. But but okay. But the, the the group of people we're talking about now are not people who go through civil commitment and get treatment, but people who are out. They've served their time. Maybe they oh, uh, some of Romo them. and Juliet, and, and yeah. they're the, yeah. they were twenty years old, had sex with a seventeen year old. Now this individual is is thirty two, still on the registry, sure, having difficulty getting a job. Does, does that person have a second chance? Sure. Don't rape another seventeen-year-old person. Um, uh, yeah, that person has a chance. I mean, so what? So the person can't live within a uh, hundred uh, feet of a public school. Um, but no, but but Emily yeah. is talking about about really important in the impact on employment. I understand that. I understand that. But but we're talking that, about does a, that person have a second chance? And is, does that person sure. deserve a second chance? Always, always. But this person can be hired by somebody. There's always a, there's always somebody who's willing to hire in some case or another. But you know what? These people have committed. So Emily's book is filled with these narratives, and every one of these narratives. Um, and Emily has said today a lot that you know these crimes are horrible, but she doesn't say that so much in her book. In her book, these people are always innocent, or they're possibly innocent, or their mother thinks that they're innocent. I, I got to say, uh, I read Emily's book, yeah, and she right. does say they're horrible. Okay, she, she and she says up, she says up front, no, I. No. I, I, I feel I should say they're horrible, even though that's not the main thing, because to take on my position, I have to say they're horrible. She says that up front, but then when she gives the narrative, the narrative is always this person. I mean, I, I could literally pull out the book. It's right in front of me. I, and she says, well, this person is probably innocent or this person. So like Ernie Lopez, who rapes a six-month-old baby, and then it turns out that maybe the baby died from a medical disease. Maybe he's innocent, but there's no evidence that uh, uh, for that story as much as there's evidence for the other story. There are plenty of stories in her book. This minister who rapes a 13-year-old boy. Um, he's a good man. He's uh, He feels punished by being on the registry. And he doesn't commit another crime for the rest of his life. Don't do it in the first place. I mean, the essence of law has to be some sort of deterrent effect on people's behavior down the line. We're not talking about people who are just accidentally... I don't know what, accidentally raping somebody? They don't just fall over somebody? These are horrible, horrible crimes by people who do this repeatedly. I, I'm not sure exactly what you're talking about, but the recidivism data is really clear. People, after they are convicted and serve time for a sex offense, are at very low risk for reoffense. So every one of these federal court cases, every one of these cases aren't telling the truth? No, I'm saying there's low, there's not zero recidivism. But obsessing about sexual recidivism takes resources away from dealing with the vast majority of child sexual abuse and adult sexual abuse and sexual violence. It is wasteful to try to uh, create these registries that have no impact on preventing uh, sexual abuse. Look, we all agree sexual harm is traumatic, and it's profound, and it's pervasive. If you experience sexual victimization, you're deeply harmed. Perpetrators should be punished and held accountable. I'm not downplaying the harm caused by sexual violence. I'm not saying sexual recidivism never happens. I'm not justifying or excusing their actions. But the, the responses that are draconian and useless destroy lives. There's a million people dealing with this and all of their families. It is not right. It's not helpful. You just you just put your your finger on a word, Emily. I'd like to take back to Carrie. You're saying that the sexual offense registry is is useless, and I want to take that to Carrie. Is it useful, and what do, what does it achieve? It achieves a public understanding of what sex offenders are capable of. I want to move into our third round, which is basically closing statements from each of you. And Emily, you again get to go first on this, and you have ninety seconds to tell us why 
you are arguing yes, uh, especially in light of the arguments that you've heard for the last uh, several minutes. So I would just say that low recidivism rates aren't caused by registries. We know the decline in child sexual abuse that radically started in the early 90s happened before registries. Um, It's due to social and economic factors. Uh, not the registry. Registries, all they do is endlessly punish and stigmatize people who've already been held accountable. I'll repeat this. Um, allowing people who've been punished the opportunity to rep- repent, to re-enter society, um, is the most important of all philosophical, reg- religious, spiritual, and ethical traditions. Um, forgiveness and redemption is crucial crucial to a healthy society, and it also keeps us safer. These laws are counterproductive. They create all the conditions for reoffense. Um, there's been a huge movement in recent years to allow people with criminal histories all sorts of opportunities. Um, but when it comes to those convicted of sex offenses, we abandon this grace. We abandon this um, because we've escalated this crime to such a level that is unconnected to the reality of it. Sexual harm's traumatic. It's real. Um, you're harmed if you are sexually victimized deeply, and accountability is really important. Being against registries isn't related in any way to downplaying the harm caused by sexual violence. Uh, It's not a way to justify or, or excuse the actions of those who do damage, but it's an effort to reveal the extent and damage and uselessness of cruel, counterproductive, costly responses. Thanks, Emily Horowitz. And Carrie Fetterman, the last word goes to you, your closing statement. Thank you, John. Uh, So I've argued that sex offender laws do more good than harm. Uh, They're the products of the deliberative aspects of parents who have children taken away from them, state legislators, federal uh, legislators as well, as well as uh, other members of the community. Um, The uh, orthodox position on this subject, I think, has three major problems relating to American politics and to democracy itself. I think in the first case, uh, it increases the power of the federal courts to supervise these kinds of laws, thereby diminishing the power of communities um, uh, to achieve public safety. I think it increases the power of social scientists, which I wanted to talk about a bit more, but it increases the power of social scientists and therefore it diminishes the power of state legislators. And third, it diminishes the power of civic engagement, uh, thereby diminishing the, the, the idea of deliberation, which to me is the essential argument for democracy. It takes away these kinds of powers. To me, uh, the orthodox position reveals itself to be a rhetorical or a strategic uh, a device. Um, therefore, I think it can only be true if the following two things are true. Since according to the orthodox position, everything is about power, if everything is about power, then state legislators can't deliberate rationally and deliberately about uh, means and ends regarding public safety. If everything is about power, then rationality itself is impossible. Therefore, if everything is about power, then social science itself is about power. And if social science is about power, it can't be objective. If social science is not objective, then Emily's position is no different than mine. There's no difference between one thing and another, one fact and another. Uh, Therefore, democracy can only exist in a world where we preserve individual responsibility and the deliberative politics of people at the local level. Thank you. And that concludes our debate. I want to thank our two debaters, Emily and Carrie. Thanks so much for coming to this with robust, well-thought-out arguments uh, and for staying through it with each other and for bringing your thoughtful disagreement to our table. And that is it for us. I'm John Donvan, and this has been a debate from Intelligence Squared U.S. 
Thanks, everybody, for tuning into this episode of Intelligence Squared. You know, as a nonprofit, our work to combat extreme polarization through civil and respectful debate is generously funded by listeners like you, the Rosencrantz Foundation, and Friends of Intelligence Squared. Intelligence Squared is also made possible by a generous grant from the Laura and Gary Lauder Venture Philanthropy Fund. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. Clea Connor is our CEO. Leo Matho is our chief content officer. David Ariosto is our managing editor. Julia Melfi and Marlette Sandoval are our producers. Gabrielle Yanicelli is our social media and digital platforms coordinator. Andrew Lipson is head of production. Damon Whittemore is our radio producer. Raven Baker is events and operations manager. And I'm your host, John Donvan. We'll see you next time. Mother's Day is almost here. And you can get her the most beautiful, time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com.